This is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State Athletics since 2013. Garrison's out of the shotgun. Artavis Pierce to his left. Garrison bobbles the snap. Now holds on to it. He's right in! The He's in! Garrison it's over! Oh, it's over! Oh, the Beavers win! Oh, my gosh! Garrison runs it in for the touchdown in Oregon State, a walk-off overtime oh. victory. Well, that was the 2016 upset victory over California, the first Pac-12 win for Oregon State in 12 games. Daryl Garrettson, the walk-off touchdown in overtime, and my ebullient color commentator, Brendan Slaughter, enjoying every moment of it as we called that action on KBVR back in 2016. Daryl Garrettson does join me on the podcast today, former Oregon State quarterback who played for the Beavers in 2016 and 2017, a transfer from Utah State, originally from Chandler, Arizona. He's got a long athletic history in his family. His father playing college football, now the head coach at Chandler High School. Daryl coaches with him now back in Arizona. Daryl's grandfather, also named Daryl Garrettson, is an NBA Hall of Famer as a referee. And Daryl's uncle, also a referee who just retired recently, who was in some memorable NBA games. We'll talk about that at the end of the conversation. But first, we just talk about the game yesterday. We recorded this conversation on Saturday, the day after Oregon State pulled out a dramatic victory over the Ducks in Reeser Stadium. Daryl Garrettson was on the team in 2016 when Oregon State defeated Oregon. Daryl was the starting quarterback that year, but had broken his ankle, and that's why Marcus McMarion was playing. I hope you also get a chance to listen to Marcus McMarion's podcast, which was Wednesday's episode. Daryl is back in Arizona and works for Signing Day Sports. It's a recruiting platform. We'll talk about that the win over Oregon yesterday and how he watched it all happen. I also bring up near the end of the conversation a a discussion I had with a Pac-12 replay assistant. There's a bit of a controversial moment near the end of the game yesterday where Oregon had called all their timeouts, but they had already called a timeout in the third quarter, and it seemed like they called four timeouts. Well, I actually talked with a Pac-12 replay official last night about why that happened, and uh, we talk about it briefly in this conversation, and I'll explain it more thoroughly at the end of this episode uh, after my conversation with Daryl and get the full scoop on that. Real quick before we talk with Daryl, a shout out to our sponsor, Lamplight Creatives. You can make your ideas brighter with Lamplight Creatives. They're a full-service creative agency offering total solutions for marketing, branding, and promotional needs. So if your business needs help with website development, content creation, whether that's videography, photography, printed materials, they can do social media content, press releases, any sort of signage or other branding things, anything you need to get your business out there online and uh, get visible more, help sell your content online. Uh, Lamplight Creatives can be very helpful with that. Graphic design, brand style guidelines, special promotions, all that good stuff. Check out lamplightcreatives.com. That's lamplightcreatives.com. All right, here is the former quarterback for Oregon State who threw for 2,000 yards in his career for the Beavers. Please join me in welcoming Daryl Garrettson. Daryl, thanks for coming on the Beaver Tales podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Glad to be on. You have a fun story of what it was like to watch a bunch of Chandler High School guys in yesterday's Oregon State-Oregon win while you were also watching Chandler High School play. So (laughs) what what was your experience like last night? Yeah, it was interesting. So uh, I was up in the booth at Chandler uh, coaching the the varsity game, and they're playing Desert Edge. And, you know, all of a sudden we're sitting there up in the booth, and 
kind of look at the scoreboard and, and the games, the games, you know, getting to a point where we can, you know, really control the game and kind of look down at my phone and my phone's buzzing. And all of a sudden I see a slight text and it's, oh my God, the Beavers. And I'm like, what is going on? And a couple of my, all of a sudden, you know, a couple more texts roll in and I'm like, what is going on? I flip up my phone real quick, hit the ESPN app, pop it up and, and pop up the game. And I got to see the last two QB sneaks at the end, which was, which was really interesting. And, uh, it was wild. I, I was like, what is going on? So at the same time, I'm watching this game. I'm watching, uh, you know, the, the Chandler game, too. And, you know, there's a bunch of guys in that game on both sides. So it was it was really uh, it was really interesting to, to watch. That is pretty crazy. So you saw the two QB sneaks. So you saw Tristan Jebbia's last play and then Chance Nolan's first play of the game. What what was your reaction to seeing the pile, Tristan getting hurt, Chance Nolan coming in, his first ever playing time, and then Oregon State winning it? What, what were your thoughts going on during that time? Well, first of all, Tristan played an unreal game. I mean, he couldn't have played any better. That was that was just an unreal performance by him. And and at the end, that's that's really really unfortunate. And I hope he's okay. And you know, I hope he bounces back. And I know, you know, he's he's going to be all right. He's 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 a tough kid uh, from from what I've heard. So you know, I hope he's going to be all right. And then you know, Chance Nolan uh, coming in, you know, being able to take one snap and, and sneak it. They all always tell you as a quarterback you're one snap away from from being in so it's uh it's one of those things you know you got to prepare for it's it's a weird mental thing that you got to get yourself ready for as a backup but you know he answered the bell um and and he snuck it in and and you know won the game a QB sneak is one of the weird plays to me you've been a quarterback I'm take take me into what it's like to get the call QB sneak and obviously, the probably the most important players in that situation are the center and the two guards. But the quarterback has a lot of importance on him, how he, uh, you know, pushes towards the line. What's it like knowing you're about to get the snap? And how do they coach you on what a quarterback is supposed to do on a sneak and what you saw of Chance Nolan last night? I mean, you want to secure the snap first. I mean, that's the first thing they tell you is make sure you secure the snap. Once you have the snap, then it's on you. You got to push, too. And, you know, those guys up front are going to do it for you um, and, and try to get the best push that they can. But you got to give them a little a little boost, you know, behind there. And, you know, if you tell if you can tell you know, certain teams if they slant, if they pinch or something like that, you know, you see guys like Tom Brady, you know, they'll sometimes find find a little lane somewhere else um, and, and pop that in there. But for the most part, I mean, he was right there. You're literally he's looking, I know the feeling you're literally looking at the goal line right in front of you. And, and you're thinking to yourself, there's no way they can stop me from getting like literally just that far. So, you know, he just did a great job putting his head down and, and pushing on through. And at first it didn't look like he was going to get there. It was kind of a second effort. He got stopped. And then just a second later, he, he pushed over, which was uh, pretty relieving for Beaver fans. Who are the Chandler guys that you've kept in touch with? There's like three or four guys that are still playing and on both sides, Oregon State and Oregon, how, how many of those guys did you or do you still know and keep in touch with? You got Hamilcar Rashid as a Chandler kid, Mason Moran, Colby Taylor. I feel like I'm leaving one more out. And then you had Johnny Johnson on the other side uh, for Oregon that was playing a receiver that's playing receiver over there. So, you know, there's, there's a bunch of guys that are there uh, from Chandler. That was, that was kind of interesting to see, you know, obviously you hope for the best, best for both guys. And it was awesome to see that. For, as a Chandler grad and, um, you know, former Beavs player, it's, it's cool to see. You went back and watched all the highlights of the game after. So you saw the, the last couple of plays live and then basically saw most of the game as it, as it actually was. What did you see 
the quarterback play has been, you know, one of the main talks of the year. Of I've wanted to see Tristan keep playing, even though he hasn't always looked great. But I, I felt some confidence that he could improve, and this was kind of the game where it's like, okay, we actually we see some growth, we see some good throws, we see him stepping out the pocket and getting slammed, but still hitting it. You know, a guy twenty yards downfield. What did you see from Tristan Jebbia as you were going back and watching the highlights? Well, I think Tristan played really, really well, um, and I don't think. I didn't even know people have been upset with him. I feel like he's played, you know, he's played pretty well throughout this whole entire time. And people got to understand too, this is a really different time um, to play as well. You know, they kind of just got thrown into the mix, uh, you know, as far as, Hey, we're going to play and stuff like that. And it's, you don't get your normal timing, you know, and stuff in with what you would normally get during spring and in summer when you're with your guys all the time. And instead everybody was quarantining. So, you know, it's been a couple Got to, going to take a couple of games to kind of get into a rhythm, so to speak, with with the offense. And that's the one thing that I saw from watching the highlights and watching, you know, the play action that they used and the way they formationed and the way that they shifted um, and, and got their best guys with their best matchups in open space. And that was the one thing that I think the coaches did a really good job on was that. And, and Tristan did a really good job of reading the defense and, and really dicing them up. Tristan could kind of celebrate, but he also was clearly in some pain. And so he like, it looked like he was, it got a little bit better where he started to give some handshakes to guys was kind of enjoying it. But in 2016, when Oregon state beat the ducks that year, you were, you, you were injured. So you couldn't play that game. If I remember right, you were just on the you know sideline and watching everything. Do you remember what it was like to, to celebrate a win, to not be able to play in that, but to still watch and see the Beavers win. What are your memories of the, the 2016 victory? Yeah, that game was absolutely wild. It was it was unreal to see, uh, especially at that time, you know, with the rain coming down and and all that and all that cool thing. It was it was just an unreal moment uh, with the team that you got you kind of got to have and and everything like that. It kind of sucked. I had to hurry up and get out of there as soon as we won because I was on a scooter and I didn't want to get ran over by anybody. So the, the, the training staff was like, hey, you got to hurry up and get inside, man, before before something bad happens or whatever. And I was like, all right. So, um, you know, it was it was nice to see that again, uh, especially back in Corvallis. It's it's awesome. It was uh, it was cool to talk with Marcus about that game and then and then his career afterwards. Obviously, you know, it didn't work out to stay at Oregon State, but he did some amazing things at, at Fresno State. What do you recall from his decision to to transfer he he said that Oregon had reached out to him and wanted him to transfer over to the Ducks to to see a guy that you're still close with and you saying that you FaceTime like at least once a month and and how your friendship with him even though you were in a quarterback competition uh what do you recall from him deciding to leave and then how your friendship has stayed ever since yeah no I mean I was in the same position I left a program too which I was uh, you know I was good friends with the, the other quarterback that I was in competition with and Chucky Keaton and Chucky actually ended up coaching, coaching us at Oregon state. Um, so me and Chucky had a really good relationship, even at, uh, at Utah state. And I think Chucky really kind of set, you know, the tone with me, especially, and kind of set the parameters and, and the foundation of how to build um, a team in a competitive environment without it being, you know, me versus you. Um, and I think how he went about that and the way he did it, I really just kind of mirrored that with, you know, obviously with a little bit of my own, um, personality and stuff like that. And, 
and really created a try to create a great atmosphere in that room. And that was the one thing that me and Marcus never had. There was zero animosity between us. Um, you know, I always helped Marcus out. Marcus always asked me questions. We were always bouncing ideas off of each other. If he had a question on a certain defense, he would always ask me and come to me and stuff like that. Um, so I kind of was able to, um, you know, kind of give Marcus a lot of knowledge um, about the offense and just kind of defense in general, just exactly how Chucky did with me when I was a young kid at Utah State. So, um, you know, Marcus is, is a really good friend of mine and he's he's an awesome dude. And the way we were able to compete with each other and and, you know, not have anything against each other, I think is really special. And I think it just goes to goes to show what type of people, um, you know, we were we were as a group in that quarterback room. Yeah. Based on your timeline coming in, you played at Utah State 2013-2014. You came in 2015, the same year Gary Anderson was in his first year with the Beavers. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but he had been there long enough where by the time you transferred, he was already the coach and was already established there. Did he also recruit you to Utah State? He had left the year you came in. So was he already gone as the new coach or who did you get recruited by at Utah State? Yeah, so Utah State kind of came late. I was actually committed to San Jose State my whole entire senior year to uh, Coach McIntyre's staff, who ended up leaving two days after my official visit, uh, ended up leaving and went to Colorado. So that was that Colorado staff that was there for, you know, five to six years. I kind of turned around their program and and really made them competitive in the Pac-12, obviously getting to a couple Pac-12 South championships and and getting close and getting in some bowl games too. Um, but I was committed to that staff. And then, you know, kind of when things shifted around and stuff like that, uh, Utah State came late with Matt Wells and, and, and Kevin McGiven and all those guys. So that's really uh, what got me to Utah State was was those guys. So it was a uh, it was a good decision. Uh, glad I glad I went to Utah State first and, you know, not somewhere else. That's funny. And now Kevin McGiven is at San Jose State, the school that you originally had committed to. Correct. Correct. And actually, he's doing a fantastic job over there. He's they're they're going absolutely wild over there with with their offense. So it's it's great to see him um, successful over there. Yeah. Him and Brent Brennan. And Brennan, I think they're yep. five and oh now, if I remember. Oregon, or, and they got a bunch of Oregon State guys. They got Casey, uh, Casey Cummings. You know, they've got uh, you know, obviously Coach Brennan was there for a really long time. They've got uh, Coach Gundy, who was at Oregon State, was now down there at uh, at San Jose State. So there's, you know, there's a big old Oregon connection tie uh, down there too. So it's it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, I hope they get a non-conference game at some point and have the Spartans come up to to Reister. That'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, uh, that'd be wild. Yeah, uh, coming back to your career a little bit. So you got recruited by Gary Anderson. If recruited is the right word, it's a weird term to use when you're a transfer. But he was the one who got you to come in to Corvallis. Do you still keep in touch with GA since you left? Let's see here. Your last year was 17. His kind of his last year too. Do you still talk with Gary? No, I don't. The The coach that I talk to the most is coach McGiven, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, our former OC and quarterback coach. I had a good relationship with him. Um, you know, I still talk to Chucky Keaton um, from, from there. So I still talk to a couple guys from Oregon state uh, D Ray, Derek Ray, who's in charge of, who's in charge of recruiting. I, I absolutely love D Ray. He's uh he's awesome. And I talk to him all the time. So, uh, you know, I still talk to uh, some guys from that staff, but obviously you lose touch with some guys, um, you know, as, as careers go on and, and so forth. 
I want to hear about what you're doing now. Uh, when you were finishing up your college career in 2017, did you have a picture of what you thought life would look like post-college, whether that be playing football or staying in the sport of football in a, in a different fashion? What were kind of your anticipations at that point and then what they actually became? Yeah. So obviously everybody wants to go to the league and play, you know, play in the NFL or Canadian, wherever it is. And obviously that's something that I wanted to do. And it was something that I trained for and did everything, just never got the opportunity. And so obviously I wanted to stay in football or stay in sports. It's something that I love and I know a lot about. So it's something I'm comfortable in. And so what I, obviously with things going forward, I ended up started privately coaching quarterbacks and then started helping out a little bit and, and starting to realize, you know, coaching, coaching is pretty fun and, and, and everything like that. So it's something that I enjoy. Um, and also now that I'm working with a, you know, a new recruiting with a new recruiting tool and a new recruiting app, um, you know, that's, that's trying to change the game as well. So it's, it's a different, uh, it's a different world now, you know, now that football is, you know, done playing, but, um, the side of being able to help kids, uh, wherever it is, 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 you know, a lot of fun as well. It's interesting to see how much technology is impacting sports and at a growing level and, and signing day sports, the, the app, the outlet that you're affiliated with and working for now is an interesting new piece to that puzzle. Tell me about how uh, signing day sports operates and the kind of things that it you know, offers to players and coaches and then how, you know, how it changes the scope of college football. Yeah. So what it does is it gives kids a platform to upload video verified measurables and video verified, you know, drills and stuff like that, that we give them through our platform that coaches can compare kids, you know, across the country in this day and age, there's so much technology, like you said, it's starting to filter in. I mean, you've got high schools with video replay with huddle on the sideline. I mean, these guys are coming to the sideline after every, after every series and they get to watch film of the series before and make their adjustments. So it's, that's really cool on that end, but and on our end with the recruiting tool is, you know, it gives kids the capability to be able to be compared across the country, you know. So if a coach is looking at it, he gets to pull up your picture um, from where you're at in, in Oregon or in Arizona where I'm at, and he gets to compare compare you with a kid, you know, that's across the country in, uh, in Oklahoma or in Massachusetts or, you know, big-time areas of, you know, New Jersey football and stuff like that where – Coaches really get to compare kids side by side. And especially with with the uh, pushback date of recruiting going to April 15th, where they're going to have no contact until then. So and there's apparently, you know, rumblings going on that it might even get pushed back further than that. So it's uh, in this day and age with so much technology, you know, no kid really should go under recruited and simple. And we're trying to bridge that gap there and uh, and, and really, you know, change kids and give kids opportunities that might not have got them beforehand. Yeah. What's your role within the signing day sports scope? Do you work in, at all with the high school kids themselves or just working with the app and other people there? What's kind of your place within the thing? Yeah. So I work within the app and work within the company, you know, getting people onboarded and, and really getting schools on and, and interested into it um, and stuff like that. So it's really been, it's really been fun, you know, talking to coaches about it and seeing coaches reactions once we kind of show them it and how it works and, and everything. It's, it's been awesome to kind of see their reaction and say, wow, you know, this is really going to change a lot of things because it allows, you know, coaches to also connect with other college coaches that they may not have before, whether besides the big D1 schools, you know, your D2s, your D3s and your NAIAs and your JUCOs, 
you know, they can, you know, maybe see a kid that might've gotten overlooked by everybody else, but you know, he can come play and, and get an education and, and get part of it paid for, which is really ultimately the goal is to get anybody, you know, an education in any way possible. And, and that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. If you were talking with the high school kids themselves and wanted to give them some sort of advice, whether it be within football of how they're approaching their athletic career or even beyond football, something that you've learned since your college days or through your college days that helped you as a person, something you wish you would know, what would you tell these high school kids who are juniors and seniors and still have, you know, plenty of years of life in front of them, plenty of life lessons to learn? What, what's something that you've taken away from yourself? Uh, just be humble and always, um, you know, and always work, work hard. Really. That's really all it is. You can, you're so young, your body can pick up on things so fast that the more you do things, um, the better you can get at it so quickly. And, and it's really, it's really easy to turn around things, um, you know, and, and always take care of your body too. you know, your, your nutrition and just overall taking care of your body, whether that's icing, heating and all that type of stuff. Um, you know, that's really going to help you in the long run. And so that's the one thing I tell guys all the time is, you know, take care of your body and, uh, you know, and always just keep working at what you're doing, whether that's on your mental side or, or the physical side, you know, and, and you gotta, you gotta understand the difference between the two, cause you can't just load up heavy on one end and not know anything on the other end, you know? So it's, it's always, you know, a happy medium with, with being able to compete with yourself, um, on, on how to do that and, and take care of that. A couple of last things for you. You had mentioned that you're coaching with your dad a little bit. He's the head coach at Chandler. He had played wide receiver at San Diego State. You've got a, a full athletic family, some athletes, some referees, and that's a pretty cool <laughs> combo. Uh, your uncle, Ron, just recently retired from being a longtime NBA ref. Your your grandfather, Daryl, uh, is in the Hall of Fame You know, for being a referee. Did you hear any stories from, well, either one of them. I, I mean, your uncle, especially like in the early 2000s, you've got the, the Tim Duncans and the Allen Iversons, Kevin Garnett and Kobe Bryant and Gary Payton and Rasheed Wallace. I mean, there were a lot of big names that he was refereeing, both of them for that matter. Any any funny stories that, you know, he would tell of, oh, this guy said this thing to me, that, that sort of thing that you remember? Well, I mean, he had some, he had some wild games. He had, he, he had malice at the palace. So there's one for that. Uh, that that's one that my uncle had, but yeah, there's, um, my dad has so many stories um, from, from the old times of when my grandfather was refing and he got to travel with my grandfather and go to these games. Um, you know, in, in the old garden and all that type of stuff. And, you know, he was just telling me, you know, his stories, it's cool to watch those documentaries with, you know, the Jordan ones or the 30 for 30 with LA and Boston. I mean, he was just sitting there kicking back and he goes, Oh, you know, I was at that game. Uh, I was at that game. Uh, I was at that game. And I'm kind of like looking at him. I'm like, dude, these are like, like hardwood classic games that you like, like people would kill to go to. And you were just, at that game. Yeah. And, you know, sure enough, you know, my grand, my grandpa was, was ref in the game and stuff like that too. So, um, you know, I've, I've, I've had a really fortunate ability to be able to go to a lot of those Laker games. So I got, I got to see in the early two thousands that three Pete, um, you know, with the Lakers. Um, and that's how I became a huge Lakers fan really was going to those games that my uncle was refing during that time. And the cool game that I got to see, I would say was, when AI went for like 40, I think he went for like 44 in game one against the Lakers and he stepped over Tyron Lou and I was at that game. So that was, uh, that was kind of, that was kind of cool to, to see, but 
Yeah, they have. I mean, you get them going and they got story after story after story. It's absolutely hilarious. There's so many classic moments. So Malice at the Palace lives on forever. And for him to be a referee in that game must have been absolutely absurd. He was also your Uncle Ron. The the classic 2000 Western Conference Finals, the Blazers hadn't been to the Western Conference Finals since just last year, I guess it was. And they're playing the Lakers and Rashid's looking at your uncle and you stop looking at me, Rashid. Stop looking at me, Rashid. All right, you're gone. Whack, you're out of here. <laughs> classic moment. Blazer fans will be mad. I Now, 20 years later, I just think it's kind of funny, to be honest. Which which of those – does he bring up those? Does he talk about either – because I want to hear about both of them, honestly. Uh, which, which one of those does he talk about a lot or other stories he talks about more often? No, he actually he actually doesn't talk about any of those, those stories really. Um, but I will say this. He does absolutely – one of his favorite places to referee was the Rose Garden uh. and stuff like that. So, And I will say this, besides Staples, because obviously I'm a diehard Lakers fan, besides Staples – going to the trailblazers, the Moda center, the Moda center now, right? Yeah. And going to the Moda center was the, the atmosphere there is, is awesome, you know? And, and I, and he really enjoyed it um, with that too. And he said, it's up there with this top, you know, his top five or even in his top three, you know, with Madison square garden and, and, and staples or, or something like that. He, he thought it was pretty, pretty sweet um, to go there every time he went there. Did you take it easier on referees when you were playing because you knew what it was like for for your family members? Absolutely not. That's why I didn't (laughs) take it easy on them because I knew what it was like and I had an idea of what they were what they had to look at. So (laughs) sometimes I give refs a hard time. You know, sometimes you know, obviously if they if they know their stuff, uh, you know, you do your homework before games. So yeah. I don't know how much of the highlights that you watch since you weren't watching it live, but it was another crazy game refereeing wise. I talked last night to a Pac-12 replay official, the guy in Reeser. Oregon had called a timeout. I don't know if you saw this or had ever experienced something like this. Oregon challenged a play late in the third quarter. So Oregon challenges it, but as they were challenging it back in San Francisco, the Pac-12 wanted to do a booth review so it wouldn't charge Oregon a timeout but the referee didn't say that he just said Oregon challenges it because they didn't get the message from San Francisco before then it wasn't until they were already reviewing it but then he says Oregon's called to charge a timeout then four minutes later of game time they just add a timeout back for Oregon because they realized oh wait no we wanted to do a booth review and they just hadn't told them then at the end of the game they used three timeouts so they basically called four timeouts but the first one didn't count and it was just absurd crazy stuff i don't know if uh, you would ever experience something like that or heard stories refereeing's hard and it only makes it harder when there's replay and then people in san francisco calling for the replays i don't know it's just weird to me yeah i know it's definitely getting tough on these referees especially with so many other sources that are influencing and with replay and stuff like that it's obviously something that's tough um you know i know especially with the nba this year they had it with the bubble they had a ton of reviews which I don't think we've ever seen that many reviews before in games, which I thought was kind of interesting. But, it, you know, it's, it's definitely tough. But I think it, at the end of the day, you know, if, if there's going to be a review, you, let's rely on it and let's use it to, it, to its advantage. So referees are, te- are going to generally tend to, you know, letting things play on and play out somehow and, you know, trying to fix it with, with replay, which, you know, which can be tough. You know, it, it could have its, pr- it's got its pros and cons just like everything else does. So, you know, those guys are having, those guys are, having to deal with a lot, especially nowadays with technology. So, you know, it's just something that training's probably got to come into effect where, you know, more training with technology and, 
and how it's working and maybe even better technology on, on that end. So many, so many crazy stuff, plenty of games to talk about, but uh, I won't take up too much of your time, but Daryl, so many fun memories. I will forever remember that the Cal game was one of my favorites to ever broadcast for KBVR doing the play-by-play and watching you walk into the end zone and win it overtime. So um, best of luck going forward with signing day sports and everything you got going. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for having me. Well, it was pretty cool to talk with a couple Oregon State quarterbacks recently. Marcus McMarion right before the Oregon game. Daryl Garrison right after. So Marcus McMarion is no longer the most recent quarterback to beat Oregon. Tristan Jebbia slash Chance Nolan joins that crew now. And Daryl Garrison also a part of that team. And it sounds like he's doing some cool stuff in the sport of college football and in that whole atmosphere, that arena. So pretty cool to hear from Daryl Garrison. All right, I teased the... Uh, Pac-12 replay timeout conundrum and briefly described it uh, in this conversation with Daryl, but I'll give you a little bit of more inside scoop. Maybe this isn't too important to you because ultimately Oregon State won the game, so it didn't come back to bite them, but I'm very fascinated always by wait a minute, why did that controversy happen? And why? what was going on in those conversations with Jonathan Smith? Why didn't they get the timeout back? Why did Oregon have three timeouts in the fourth quarter? So if you're interested in that, uh, here's a little bit of extra info on why all that happened. So this stems to late third quarter. There's about two minutes left. Jamar Jefferson is running the ball, has the ball stripped by Oregon defensive back Diamador Lenore. He has Lenore gets the ball, goes to the sideline. He's ruled out of bounds, so there's no fumble, and Oregon State maintains possession. Oregon thinks maybe Lenore stripped the ball and had it cleanly in bounds, so they go ahead and challenge the call. You can hear referee Steven Strimling say, Oregon is calling a timeout. They're challenging the call. They go to the review. They ultimately decide to keep the call in the field, so no fumble. And Strimling comes back and says, Oregon loses their challenge and is charged with a timeout. He says that after the review. What he did not say and what he apparently did not know is that after Oregon called timeout, the replay officials in research stadium here from San Francisco, which is where the PAC 12 does their review in house back in their uh, studios and in their building in San Francisco, they wanted to review that play themselves and the PAC 12 themselves can start a review without a team challenging. They actually initiated that review before our Oregon called the timeout, but because they have to communicate from San Francisco to the replay officials in Research Stadium, and then the replay officials in Research Stadium have to buzz down to the officials on the field to blow the whistle, they didn't realize until after Oregon called the timeout that the Pac-12 itself wanted to start a review. So the order went, Pac-12 wants to start a review, then Oregon calls a timeout, then the officials at Research Stadium realize that the Pac-12 wanted to review it. So in that period of latency, Oregon called a timeout. By rule, as long as the Pac-12 was the first one to initiate the review, Oregon is not charged a timeout because they didn't do that until after San Francisco wanted it back in, back in the studios there. The funny thing is, if Oregon called the timeout, which stopped play, Oregon State was about to hike the ball, so there wouldn't have been a review if Oregon hadn't called timeout. It would have been too late. The, the Pac-12 would have said, we want a review, but Oregon State would have ran a play, and they would have said, well, it's too late. We can't do it. So Oregon benefited by calling a timeout, but then didn't have it charged to them. However, that was done correctly. I mean, by rule, that's how it always goes, by paper, as long as they initiate the review from San Francisco, even if that isn't communicated in time, technically Oregon should get the timeout back. But here's the problem. Steven Strimling, the referee, didn't say that. After the review, he said, Oregon loses a timeout. 
he's supposed to say Oregon gets their timeout back because the Pac-12 initiated the review. Apparently, that was not communicated to him, and he did not know that. Four minutes later, Oregon gets their timeout back. On the scoreboard, it showed Oregon only having two timeouts left through the rest of the third quarter and the beginning of the fourth quarter. If you go back and watch the game with 13 minutes left, seemingly, inexplicably, Oregon gets a timeout back on the board. Now, the source I have, it was actually him who reached out saying Oregon should have three timeouts. That replay was initiated by the Pac-12, not Oregon. So that's why it was realized late and a seemingly unknown, why was it 13 minutes left? Why at that point is Oregon at the timeout back? It was just because it was noticed at that point. So they add the timeout back. Now, later in the game, it started to become more relevant. Wait a minute, didn't Oregon challenge the call? And the referees never announced why Oregon got their third timeout back. They had always just said, Oregon called a challenge. So they get the timeout back. Oregon ends up using all three of those timeouts. The most important one coming late, where Tristan Jebbia sneaked the ball, they do the review. Both teams went to challenge and see if he got in or didn't get in. Oregon ends up calling a timeout on third and one. Oregon State tries to sneak it again. Oregon State does not get in. Tristan Jebby gets hurt on that play. Now, in Oregon State's mind, now it's fourth down and goal. They've only got one play left. They may as well run out the clock to one second because if they score, then Oregon can't respond. Oregon would want to stop the clock because either they stop them and they win or they allow the touchdown to at least have a chance. So Oregon calls timeout. So it was a pretty big deal that they had that last timeout because otherwise they wouldn't have gotten the ball back after Oregon State scored on the QB sneak. Now, in the end, Oregon ended up not scoring with 30 seconds left. So to a certain degree, you could say, what does it matter? And that's fine if you don't really care too much. To me, it's just fascinating why everything happened in the way that it is. Partially, everything did happen according to plan. Oregon should have gotten the timeout back, but there was clearly a delay in communication. Why didn't the referees uh, hear that? Why weren't they told that Oregon should get the timeout back? Why didn't they say that on the television? Oregon's getting their timeout back because of this. Why wasn't Jonathan Smith told that? Why was he initially charged a timeout from that review? Even when the referee said before the challenges, we're going to review this. That was on the on the QB sneak. So still a lot of questions. And to me, it's just subpar communication. But it does shed a little bit of light on what the ruling was and uh, how that all happened behind the scenes. In case that's something you're interested in, uh, there's a little bit of a scoop for you. So. Most importantly, though, Oregon State beats Oregon. I mean, that's the real story here. For the first time in four years, the Beavers get the win. They get it at home with a quarterback who's never played for the Beavers before, comes in on his first career snap for Oregon State and scores a game-winning touchdown. That's what I'll remember this game for. I'll remember it for Jamar Jefferson going crazy, Tristan Jebbia having his best game as a Beaver, and Chance Nolan coming up big in the end. Those will be the most memorable things. This is just a little added element that maybe you didn't catch on TV. So hopefully uh, that you know helps you understand it a little bit more. I was interested by it. So there you go. Thanks again for tuning in to the Beaver Tales podcast. My thanks for Daryl Garrettson joining me. And we've got some fun guests upcoming. Seth Peach, Oregon State baseball player. Patricia Bright, Oregon State women's basketball player. I think we'll get a few other football guys on soon as well. And more guests. Always feel free to recommend me. Any guests, uh, follow me on Twitter at Bright Ties. The word bright, the word ties, T-I-E-S, at Bright Ties. All right, until next time, everybody, here on the Beaver Tales podcast, I've been your host, Josh Ward. Good night, everybody, and go Beavs.